Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, May 22nd, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebig with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and last week we talked about some big fish, and we wanted to keep that trend rolling. So this week we're talking about North America's largest leucicid, the Colorado pike minnow. I'm super pleased to introduce our two guests. We've got Eliza Gilbert and Dale Ryden. Dale's based in Colorado at our Grand Junction Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office. And Eliza is with our San Juan River Basin Recovery Implementation Program with our New Mexico Ecological Services Field Office. So big welcome to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. To kick things off, we're going to step back in history a bit. We'll say it's prior to the late 1800s, and we're going to try to imagine this place we're going to, the Colorado River and the landscape through which it flows. What might our first impression be standing on the bank anywhere along that river, its major tributaries? Okay. The river a couple hundred years ago was very different than it is today. Today, the river is very grown up along its banks. It's very encroached upon by things like tamarisk and Russian olive. And a couple hundred years ago, it was much more open. There was cottonwood, but a lot of the native plants like willow and and things like that, while they grew along the river's bank, they weren't nearly as heavy or confined the river's bank from moving around nearly as much. You'd have seen more side channels, probably less channelization in deep parts throughout the river. The river would have been naturally pretty muddy, especially during high spring flows. The river carried a bunch of mud towards the sea as it made its way through various stages, but it also tended to cut new channels, put new cobble sources in the river, and just generally was a much more open meandering type system than what we have now. What color was it? Because it's a pretty (laughs) unique kind of looking river as rivers go. Yeah, to answer that, it's estimated that the Colorado River right before it enters Lake Powell carries something annually like 45 million tons of sediment into Lake Powell every year. And so just to put that in perspective, that's about 85 tons of sediment a minute that it carries into Lake Powell. So it was very muddy. Back in the day, the early settlers said it was too thick to drink, but too thin to plow. And so my description is that the river, when it's flowing and carrying a lot of turbidity, looks an awful lot like Ovaltine. Are there any cool historical stories about uses of these fish or anecdotes that you've come across about kind of the time prior to some of the major changes that have happened in the system? Well, we know for a fact Native American tribes made use of Colorado pike minnows since we found them in their midden piles. And the early settlers fish for them quite a bit. There's a lot of stories of old timers from the 1800s and the early 1900s fishing for them, using birds and mice and rabbits as bait. Dang. They would actually float these things out there with a giant hook on a piece of wood and yank it off the piece of wood once it reached a deep hole, and then they would get a bite almost instantly. And then they'd reel in these fish that were four plus feet long. One of my favorite stories is from a young cowboy who was on the Yampa River, worked for one of the local cattle companies, and he used a baby mouse for bait and caught a pike minnow that was over four feet long. And he wanted to go impress one of the girls at a local ranch that he was fond of. And so he hung it from the saddle horn of his horse after he whacked it on the head three or four times and thought it was dead rode over to this homestead and called out the young lady and her mom and the pike minnow woke up and 
slapped the horse in the belly with its tail and the horse immediately dislodged the cowboy and took off through the laundry line and strung the mom's laundry out across half a mile of prairie. But uh, they were called white salmon because they were migratory, but they were also highly used as a food fish by early settlers. And especially during the depression days, a lot of people would eat these and can them and they were very big. And so they could get big, large fillets off of them and can them and use them over time. And for a lot of people that didn't have a lot of money, this was a good source of food. Yeah, there's some really nice old photos out there where there's a settler kind of homestead and you can see it almost looks like a laundry line, but you just have all these pike minnow. We've covered humpback, chub, and razorback sucker, but who else was in that community? We got the pike minnow, which we're going to focus on today, but what are some of the other species we'd come across? So the species that evolved in the Colorado River Basin, and there's a lot of ones that are endemic, meaning that they're only found in the Colorado River Basin, evolved to this very dynamic system that just had from one extreme to the next, which kind of makes these fishes pretty awesome in the fact that they evolved to really survive really well in this system. The common native sucker species, the flannelmouth sucker and the bluehead sucker, the speckled dace, which is a small-bodied fish, Round-tailed chub, which are a cousin of Colorado pike minnow, and also a very close cousin of humpback and bony tail. And then the razorback sucker, which is the other kind of the third native sucker. But those are really the, the main species that were kind of from the Grand Junction or Farmington area down. If you go a little farther up in the system, you get some colder water fish like mountain whitefish, but those weren't really very common in the warm water areas. So it's a pretty depauperate fish community. There's not very many fish species. And really, the Colorado pike minnow is the only top predator in that group of fish. So it was kind of the lion of the river, but really it was adapted to eat those native fish, none of which have hard spines. And so all the fish that it fed on were kind of long and cylindrical and shaped like hot dogs. And uh, (laughs) that's kind of how all those fish evolved. And one of the theories on razorbacks that survive with pike minnows, it has the hump to keep from getting eaten from things like pike minnow. So Yeah, some interesting things that have developed evolutionarily between these species over time. Sounds super cool. We're starting to touch on it, and you guys have done a great job of grounding us in the place where we are. But let's talk a little bit about what this fish looks like. Now, it's called a pike minnow, and we've covered northern pike on this show. I'm curious, do you know if this fish is named after the other fish or after the weapon that the other fish is named after, or what is behind this name and as it relates to the fish's appearance? Well, I can try to answer that. So originally it was called Colorado squawfish, but in recent years, the American Fisheries Society tried to come up with a new name that described what the fish looked like. And and pike minnow is a long cylindrical fish. It has a body shape very much like a northern pike, and it also kind of occupies that same top predator role. And so when they renamed it, it's a pike-like minnow is the reason they chose that. So there's some significant differences though, right? Because like these are a minnow, So they don't have teeth, right? Which makes them distinctly different from most other predatory fish. So they have these like little crunchers in the back of their mouth. And so they kind of suck in fish and then crunch them down through their stomach. So yeah, they have a really cool looking face. Like their mouth is interesting. Could one of you just kind of describe what their face looks like? So they have a really big head, which takes up about a quarter of their body. And their head is extremely prominent. They've got really big opercles as well. So their head looks like kind of a massive thing that's been almost put unnaturally on the front of their long cylindrical body. But 
They've got these really big, strong lips. I, I like to refer to them as like Mick Jagger lips. They've got these, they're almost cartoonish looking. They're so big and strong. And part of the reason they are so big and strong is because they don't have teeth in their jaws. And so they're a gulper. When they swim up and ingest fish, they actually gulp them in. And then as Eliza referred to, they have pharyngeal teeth in their throat that once they gulp their prey in, that helps hold on to it and keep it from backing out of their mouth. Their mouth does come to the back of their eye, whereas their cousins, the chubs, the mouth comes to the front of their eyes. So when they're young, that's one way of telling them apart. But yeah, they're a big, strong fish. They're olive green on top, and then their sides kind of range to a more yellow-brown color. And then their underbelly is this really stark white color. So they've got this countershading thing where, like you see in other animals, where if you're looking at them from below with the bright sky behind them, you wouldn't see them. But from above, in the muddy water, they can also really hide really well with the back and their coloration as well. So a very cool, very well-adapted predator. When they're young, they're very silvery and they're very sleek and fast. And so I think one of the biggest enemies they probably had as young fish were other pike minnow. And so the young are very adapted to move very quickly. And the young also have a black spot on their tail, which helps tell them apart from other closely related chub species. What's the fish community like today? So humpback chub, razorback sucker, Colorado pike minnow, flannelmouth sucker, bluehead sucker, and maybe round tail cut. Oh, and bony tail. Yeah. All of that's like six or seven species right there are considered big river fish. So of those you just mentioned, you've got three currently considered endangered. And then one has recently been downlisted to threatened, and that's the humpback chub. Another one is kind of on the sites of should it be listed federally? And then another two like are considered part of this three species contingent where the states are trying to make sure they maintain those populations so they don't go out. So we're talking about a native fish community that's kind of tanking and then non-native fish community that's soaring. So it's this weird dynamic there. So as we kind of discussed earlier, the Colorado naturally had a pretty depauperate fish community, only about 10 native fish in the warm water sections. And now we have this soup of about 50 to 75 non-native fish species that these guys have to compete with. And so while they're out there swimming around trying to deal with all the other things like low flows and contaminants and dams and all these things, they also have to deal with this soup of non-native fish species, most of which are detrimental to them in some way. They either compete with them or prey upon them. And a lot of them have spines both on their back and in their teeth. So they're much more efficient predators and if they get ingested by pike minnow, there's a lot of records of Colorado pike minnow actually choking on these non-native fish species. And uh, again, they're gulpers, so they gulp them in and things like catfish or bass or whatever will flare out their spines and then the pike minnow can't spit it back out. And oh, so man. they actually end up choking. And so you have a fish that maybe is 25 years old that gets taken out by a, by a young non-native fish, you know, maybe isn't that old. And so it's a very different fish community that they have to deal with. One of their biggest predators actually is a red shiner, which only gets to be about six inches long as an adult. But pike minnow, when they come out of the egg, are only about 25 millimeters long. And so as they come up out of the eggs and swim into these back waters that are loaded with 10,000 red shiners, the red shiners just basically mm. wipe them out before they can ever grow up to be big fish. Oof, man. 
Lutrensis causing trouble all over the world, <laughs> all over the country. Although they're beautiful. They are pretty. Those males are gorgeous, but I don't want to talk good about them on this episode. But, you know, there's issues with them hybridizing with other shiner species and stuff. Oh, Terrible. Man. It sounds like it's just facing multiple threats. You know, you got the habitat changes and degradation. You got the non-native species. But I'm curious where you can still find the Colorado pike minnow and from what stretches has it been extirpated? How far did it used to get? So their range historically went all the way from the Little Snake River in Wyoming downstream to the Gulf of California and Mexico, where the Colorado River entered the sea historically. It went across a number of states and through a number of really different habitats. I mean, if you look at the upper basin rivers, just the ones we work in, they're all very different. They occupied just a huge range of habitats. And a lot of them would migrate four or 500 miles in their lifetimes to either spawn or colonize new areas or whatever an area called Lee's Ferry, where the upper basin and the lower basin are legally divided. They really only exist in the upper basin. So they exist in the Colorado and Gunnison Rivers here, the Green, White, and Yampa River over in mostly Utah, and then the San Juan River in New Mexico and Utah and some of its smaller tributaries. So their range has been almost halved or more than halved. And it's really the colder portion of their habitat is the area in which we're now trying to recover this fish. The San Juan River population was more or less gonzo. And I think like Dale in maybe the mid-1990s, he caught like the last two or three adult pike minnow that existed in the San Juan River. And then since then, that program that I work for, the San Juan Recovery Program, has gotten hatchery-produced pike minnow. And that's why there are Colorado pikemen on the San Juan River. But the awesome thing about the other rivers where Dale works is that those are naturally self-sustaining populations. So those are wild, awesome. have not been augmented at all. So it's, it's cool that there is one section of the world where the species is doing its thing. Although... <laughs> yeah, I know. There's, I know. <laughs> They're looking at augmentation in the Green River too, because that population has fallen from several thousand individuals to several hundred individuals over the last mm-hmm. 10 to 12 years. So they are in okay. trouble, and we may end up having to do augmentation in the Colorado and Green River as well. We hope mm-hmm. not, but we might. It was interesting. We were talking to Zeb Hogan last week. He actually had a question about the size because these guys have been, I guess, historically reported to be six feet, which classifies them as that kind of freshwater mega fish category. But it sounds like maybe this could affect their size too, in terms of kind of that range being cut like that. Yeah. You know, I think there were six foot individuals. I think they were probably on the upper end of the size range for this Northern part of their habitat, but certainly there's a lot of anecdotal evidence for there being six foot long fish here. Certainly for a fish that lives to be 40 years old, it probably took them almost their entire lifespan to get that big. And a lot of the reason besides the cold water that I think they don't get that big now is because they just don't live as long. I mean, now they have all these things that are working against them, contaminants and non-native fish and Asian tapeworm, which they never used to have to deal with. Plus, we still have people that go out and fish. We know we lose quite a few, at least in the Colorado River Basin from fishing pressure. So even though they're not supposed to be harvested, we know they are because we see pictures online of people who immediately take them down once they're contacted by the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, So yeah, there's a whole slew of reasons, I think, why they don't live as long or grow as big as they used to. But certainly, I think we were kind of in the colder part, the northern part of their habitat naturally. These fish have declined. What are some of the things you two are working on 
and that your programs are working on to help these fish survive and also be conserved into the future? Well, Eliza works for the recovery program, so I'm going to let her answer this one first. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So I work for the San Juan River Recovery Implementation Program. And then there's a kind of our sister program, which is called the Upper Colorado River Endangered Fish Recovery Program. And they take care of Colorado pike minnow in all the other rivers that Dale talked about. So Upper Colorado River, Green, Gunnison, White, and Yampa. So more often than not, that's going out and removing non-native fish from the streams. We do focus a lot on trying to get what's called a natural flow regime to be established in the river. So that's really working with Bureau of Reclamation folks who are kind of in charge of the different reservoirs that head up all of these different rivers and asking them to release flows out of those reservoirs that kind of mimic as best as possible in a natural hydrograph. And a lot of that goes back to what Dale was talking about earlier in that the floodplain has changed. So if we can try to get a natural hydrograph, can we create the habitat that used to exist? So non-native fish flows, fish passage is huge. So the Colorado River has been called one of the most managed rivers in the world, meaning that there's a whole bunch of diversions off of it. Those diversions cross the river. Multiple millions of dollars have been spent to create fish passage. And then Like I said, so this is just for the San Juan River. Then we spend a lot of time and effort to augment Colorado pike minnow in the San Juan River. Um, So Dale runs one hatchery, and then we have another one in southern New Mexico where we get fish. And then we do a lot of monitoring, so a lot of like science. So one would think, oh, we just need to put these fish back in the system. We just need to remove their predators. But It's not as easy as that. So it's still really hard to figure out exactly what we need to do to keep this fish on the landscape. So there is a lot of research. Is there anything you want to say about sediment for folks who may not really have a familiarity with the movement of sediment through rivers and why it's important? You know, this river evolved with moving sediment. That's how it forms new habitats. It forms islands. It digs new side channels. It's a fairly nutrient-poor river system, and so by moving sediment and entraining sediment, it also brings in things like woody debris, leaves, bugs, things like that that add nutrients to the system. The native fish really evolved using sediment as their form of cover because there aren't a lot of log jams and things like that in the river where you can go and hide from things like avian predators really The turbidity is what they use to not be seen by birds and and things like that. So it was a form of cover for them. And they really evolved to, especially in the lower river, to have their young rear in some of these backwater areas that were formed by things like sediment settling out of the river column and forming these ephemeral backwaters, especially in the warm summer months. And so sediment is kind of, in many ways, the lifeblood of the river and these fish evolved to use it in many ways that are pretty important to them. And then I would just highlight that, like what Dale just said, we consider backwaters to be probably the limiting habitat for the recovery of pike minnow and razorback sucker. And the production of backwaters is due to sediment movement. So I think it's crucial as far as habitat's concerned. It also makes nice beaches for biologists to camp on. (laughs) And have lunch. (laughs) I think the other really important thing to think about when you think about these fishes and the landscape is that this is a snowmelt driven system, right? So this is like pure on dominated by the Rocky Mountains and what the Rocky Mountains produces as far as water. And so you would have had 
massive extremes in the amount of water that was coming through the system. So in the spring, when the snow was melting from all those different ranges, like went through the Grand Canyon, but like at a hundred thousand CFS, the San Juan River might've experienced somewhere up to 40 to 60,000 CFS. But I mean, there used to be so much water pummeling through those systems in the spring. And then in the summer through the fall, it turns into a very sweet meandering kind of type of system. Unfortunately, there's also threats that we really can't manage for. One of the big ones we deal with are contaminants and our two big contaminated issues are mercury and selenium. And we get selenium from irrigating over what's called Manco Shale. And when you get large amounts, it causes behavioral and developmental problems, as well as mercury. And that both can cause reproductive failure as well. But those are really hard to manage for. We do work with other entities to try and control things like emissions from coal-fired power plants and stuff that we can do here locally within the U.S. But, you know, 40% of our mercury comes airborne from out-of-country sources like China and places like that. So contaminants are a big one. There's some other things that these fish deal with, of course, zebra and quagga mussels, invasive crayfish that we can't really have management actions for that are effective. I don't know, we kind of call it a death by a thousand cuts. Any one of these things or a couple of these things they could probably deal with on their own. But when you put them all together, it really gets to be this huge quandary of a problem because things pile on top of each other and you get these synergistic effects between them. So I think there are a lot of good things happening management-wise with the recovery programs to help these fish, but there's a lot of things that continue to plague these fish that we can't even really begin to touch. So I'm just curious if you could elaborate a little bit more on your hatchery program. In particular, you're talking about this population that may be needing augmentation. And in the last decade or so, we've been hearing more and more about how like stocking on top of naturally reproducing fish can potentially affect the genetic integrity of those fish. But of course, with a population that's declining, sometimes you need help. So how do you weigh and balance those two competing sort of factors for conservation? When we really started augmenting Colorado pike minnow, it started in the San Juan River. And as Eliza mentioned, the natural population of Colorado pike minnow had blinked out. And so we really didn't have that issue. So far, we have not stocked on top of wild populations for the very reasons you're discussing. Just because, yeah, it's not the best thing to be putting hatchery fish on top of wild fish. No matter how good they are genetically and all the training you do for them in a hatchery, they're never going to be a wild fish. A hatchery fish is always somewhat less effective and less able to survive when you put it in a river than is a wild fish. And so we are not to that point yet, but we're getting pretty close. Given the situation that you've described with these fish declining, we we may not have another option in another 10 years. I know that hatcheries can have all different techniques. Like since these guys are predatory, are there any special like training or enrichment that happens with the fish to prepare them to get released if they are a little bit bigger? Yeah. You know, one of the problems with hatchery fish is they get domestically selected fairly fast. And so if you're going to grow them to adults, you have to make sure you're trying to put them in as natural a conditions as you can. In other words, you want them eating other fish, not pellets of food that are raining down on their head and things like that. So (laughs) you really need to train them to be able to deal with things like flow, things like turbidity, things like actually going out and seeking their own food that looks like another fish. It's very hard to put a good predator back out at an adult size and have it function in the wild the way it would had it recruited in the river. 
And then I do want to add, so sometimes it's hard asking for money to do something until you've proven that it works. So we have done some really low-level experimentation with Flow, and we did it with Razorback Sucker because that's the stocked fish as well. And we found that you can double their survival if you exercise them with Flow before putting them out in the river just for the first year. And so we now have money to do flow training for all Colorado pike minnow that go out into the San Juan River. And we hope there's the same response. And then we also got funding to build four ponds. Two of those ponds would be to grow prey and the other two ponds would be to train the pike minnow on those prey before they go out. And so Dale did say to get them all the way to adulthood, it's like 250 millimeter Colorado pike minnow. So they're like age one, go into the San Juan River. All these species respond differently, right? So you can throw razorback sucker out into the wild and they stick, they survive. But you put bony tail out there and they're just belly up. They're stocking, huh. like barely works. But, you know, in the San Juan River, we've probably now stocked over... 5 million pike minnow, and we have an estimated adult population of like 200, right? So just because you put them out there doesn't mean they survive. Yeah. So we'd like to flow train them and prey train them all before they go into the river. Yeah. But I can't tell you right now if that's going to work, but we okay. sure hope it will. Yeah. That's complicated. It sounds like it's a whole lot easier just to keep a fish from becoming threatened if you can yeah, do that. that would yeah, that's great. <laughs> so like Katrina mentioned last week, we had Zeb Hogan on. And one of my favorite things from that episode was towards the end, he was talking about how you have these endangered catfish over in the Mekong and how now when people catch them, they recognize the importance of this species. They know what it is and they're starting to release them voluntarily just to get them out in the wild because it's valuable to them, it's valuable to their culture. And as we've talked throughout this show, there's lots of non-native sport fish. So people are fishing on the Colorado River and there's a chance that people are going to catch the Colorado pike minnow. So what needs to be done to let people know how cool these fish are and how to handle them right and make sure that they are releasing them back and able to propagate the species in perpetuity? Our office does an awful lot of outreach. We give fish ladder tours and hatchery tours and classroom presentations. We've actually helped a local high school build an endangered fish hatchery as part of their high school class wow. that they run. And the students wow. are going to stock those fish out here in a couple of days probably 20 to 30 years ago, most of the public didn't know we were here. And those that did, didn't really like what we were spending our money on. And over time, some of our biggest advocates have actually come on to be things like water users or groups that weren't federal agencies. And as we've educated groups of people over time uh, through, say, elementary school tours, those kids have grown up and are now teachers that are bringing more elementary school kids back to the same hatchery to learn about the fish that they did. And so the advocacy base locally, at least here in the Grand Junction area, has grown hugely. You're always going to have a group of people that no matter what they catch out of the river, they're going to keep them. That's just the way it is. It doesn't matter if it's endangered, they're supposed to release it, whatever. However, there is a lot of people that get a hold of us and say, hey, I caught this pike minnow, here's a picture of it. And they're actually holding it half down in the water because they know they're not supposed to be holding it up where it's going to dry out and it could flop around and fall on the ground and get hurt. And they say, and I released it, but I just wanted to let you know. And a lot of that is really due to the efforts of our information and education folks who work through the recovery programs to put out this information, to have things like 
stickers to give away to kids and rulers that have pictures of the fish on them and trading cards and, and brochures to hand the adults and all kinds of public forums where we reach out and educate people. We talk to people all the time when we are out sampling and we see people on the bank. We'll actually pull our boats over and go, hey, do you want to see an endangered fish and show them to them? Because oh, wow. most people who aren't a fan of endangered fish have never seen one. The first time they hold a razorback or hold a Colorado pike minnow and get to touch it, they walk away going, that's the coolest fish I've ever Super seen in cool. my life. Yeah. And when you tell them, if we could get these things recovered, you guys could go out and fish for fish that get to be four to six feet long, as opposed to stalker 10-inch trout in the local pond. They're like, oh, I'm all about that. How do we get that done? And so, yeah, trying to just assign value to these fish, I think, is is huge. And luckily within our country, I think the attitude of people in general has changed in that, you know, we realize we're losing things that we don't even know the value of or didn't even know we really had. To kind of dovetail off that, I mean, we have folks from all over the country that tune into this show who might not know the nuances of this species or of other pike minnow. Could one of you just quickly explain kind of pike minnows in context in the U.S. and like what species there are and where they're located? So there's four species of, of pike minnow. There's the Sacramento, the Umpqua, the Colorado pike minnow, and you've got me scrambling for my nose. Very confusingly named northern, <laughs> northern pike minnow. I was thinking yeah. I was missing the worst one. So it's kind of funny. We had a guy who worked for us years ago that actually worked on recovering Colorado pike minnow and then moved to the Pacific Northwest and got paid to remove northern pike minnow. So most of the pike minnow outside the Colorado River are also predators they're very aggressive. They're very good at what they do. And most of them prey on species of trout and other salmonids that are economically important and or endangered. And so they get kind of a bad rap in that they are a highly effective predator. But it, when you talk to people about Colorado pike minnow, it is a different fish from those fish. This particular predator is not doing well and we stand to lose it. And it has a very rich cultural and historical value to the river as well as being a top predator and controlling populations of other fish like top predators are supposed to do. And point being, I mean, just we're hoping folks get to know all the fish through this podcast and just, yeah, because they they are very different and important. And there's a lot yep. of nuances. Kind of wrap up question for me. Any advice for anglers? Yeah, I mean, if you do catch something you're not sure, then put it back. Certainly, if you know it's a non-native fish, we would love your help in removing non-native fish, any non-native fish because there's lots of them and we're not going to run out of them. But if you catch a native fish, most of them are either state or federally protected. So if you think it's a native fish, put it back because there's not that many of them and we would like to keep them off the endangered species list. And we would love to have these fish recovered where we could go fish for all of them and not worry about them. So if you're not sure, put it back. And then I guess I would just add one thing is don't move fish around. <laughs> Right. So, so the, a big part of what Dale is dealing with all these non-native fish in his section of the river have to do with introductions of non-native fish. And so the less we can move fish around, the better, because oftentimes these non-native fish just take over. They love their new spot. It's funny how the times have changed from the days of the U.S. Fisheries Commission yep. and the fish yep. trains. Yep. All right. Well, this has been fascinating and yeah. Appreciate you guys coming on. This is great. Yeah. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you. All right. Get out there and enjoy all the fish and work on your fish ID and appreciate those native fish. I hope we get some new pike minnow lovers out there. <laughs> Colorado pike minnow lovers. Yes. Okay. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. I'm thoroughly convinced the way to recover Colorado pike minnow is to put them in a river where they don't belong. So if we stock them in the Mississippi, we could probably recover them. (laughs) Nice and turbid. There you go. The San Juan River Basin Recovery Implementation Program and its sister program, the Upper Colorado Endangered Fish Recovery Program, exists to recover endangered Colorado fishes while providing for water development. They are collaborative programs that consist of formal agreements between states, the states of Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, and New Mexico, and federal agencies, including the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs, the U.S. Park Service, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Also tribes, the Hickory Apache, Southern Ute, Navajo Nation, and Ute Mountain Ute, as well as formal representation from environmental interests that are currently represented by the Nature Conservancy and formal representation by water development interests. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is responsible for coordinating these entities who determine, as a group, how to spend the funds allocated to these programs towards management actions, research, and monitoring that need to be done to recover the Colorado Basin's threatened and endangered fish, which includes the Colorado pike minnow.